stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Welsh-Canadian writer Joe Walton, is the author of 10 novels, three poetry collections, and a collection of essays. In 2002, she won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, and in 2004, the World Fantasy Award for her novel, Tooth and Claw. It was her 2011 novel, among others, that made history, however, becoming one of only seven novels to ever been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards, and in winning the Hugo and the Nebula, beat out the likes of Stephen King and George R.R. R. Martin. Earlier this year, she released What Makes This Book So Great, rereading the classics of science fiction and fantasy, and she's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest novel, My Real Children, a book that author and reviewer Cory Doctorow says... It literally kept me up all night, weeping uncontrollably with the most astounding mixture of joy and sorrow I have ever felt. And NPR marveled at the book's elegance. There isn't a word wasted. There's a deliberateness in its every moment and movement, no matter how small. The cruelties are horrific and heartbreaking, but economically so. The happinesses are writ small, but glow fiercely. Welcome to Between the Covers, Joe Walton. Thank you. So, so Joe, in, in My Real Children, it's the story of Patricia, a woman who has dementia, and she remembers two lives. She, depending upon which children come to visit her in, in the nursing home, one of her memories feels more real than the other. And us as readers get to go back to that, that moment in the past when her memories diverge and follow them forward toward, toward her present moment. How did you come up with this idea? What what was compelling about it, and, and what were some of the, the origins of it? Okay, so she's one woman who has two lives, or she remembers two lives. She's 88 or 89, she can't remember which. She's in a nursing home. She is confused, and she genuinely is confused. This is not a, a magical situation where she's not confused. She's confused. She can't find her glasses. She can't find her hearing aids. She's like a lot of our elderly relatives who are like that. But she also has these contradictory memories. And like a lot of people like that, her memories of the past are quite sharp, but her memories of what's going on now are confused. But she remembers these two different lives. And I got the idea for this book when I was talking to a friend who is her age, who was also born in 1926, and who was telling me about her, not for the first time, telling me about her husband's marriage proposal, where he actually said to her the thing that is in the book, 
uh, now or never. If you're going to marry me, it's got to be now or never. And I thought, what an amazingly different life my friend would have had if she'd said no at that point instead of going into this, in, into this marriage. And I suddenly got the idea for the whole, the whole thing and the whole structure of the story where I would alternate the chapters between the two lives, keeping them roughly in the same time space but with different things happening and diverging the history as it went along as well as her personal life. And the reason it was interesting to me to write this is that there are a lot of alternate histories, but they tend to focus on major characters and major events and wars and big changes. Men, essentially. Whereas for most of us, history happens in the background of our lives. If we can remember where we were when Princess Diana died or when Kennedy was assassinated... What we're remembering is our own life with history going on in the background, that where we were conversation. So that's what I wanted to do here, was have somebody who knows where she was when the Cuban Missile Exchange took place, but wasn't directly involved in it. And yet, her tiny decisions about how she lives her life are shaping and changing the world that she lives in, her world, both her worlds. So I thought that would be interesting. And I also thought focusing on a woman's life in the second half of the 20th century going through second wave feminism and the things that are both good and bad about that would be an interesting thing to do. And you mentioned, you, you quoted Cory Doctorow, crying all night. When you write about somebody's whole life, you have to write about death. And death is sad. And it is sad. And it's something that is not written about very much in an unsentimental way. People are very sentimentalizing about both death and age. And I thought it would be interesting to treat them in a sort of science fictional way and with a character who is intelligent and capable of looking at what is happening to her as you or I might be. She's not stupid just because she is confused. You know, it, it, it hasn't taken away her IQ. It's just taken away an ability to concentrate and, and keep check on where she is with things. So I, I, I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. Well, it was an, one of the real remarkable feats of the book, I think, is that we, when the, the lives converge, and in one life she's called Trish and the other she's called Pat. That's right. Um, her lives couldn't be more different in the circumstance. And yet you really do achieve the feeling that it's the same spirit that's animating that's right. both of them. She's the same person. And that's what I thought would be an interesting challenge to do, that she is the same person, even though her lives are so different. But her life splits. She's born in 1926, and her life splits in 1949. So I actually, after the first chapter where she's in the nursing home, there are four chapters in 1933, and then there's one during the war, and then there's one at Oxford, and there's one after Oxford. Four whole chapters in this world, solidly establishing who she is, so that once I split it, by the time I split it, you already really know who she is. I think if you wrote this book where somebody splits at, at 15 or, or 21, then they would become more different. But by the time she splits, she is solidly established a lot of formative things have happened to her. She already knows who she is. She's been through a lot already. And also it gives me a chance to establish how history works in the background because we all know the Second World War. We know that 
events of the Second World War that are happening in the background of her life there, so that when you get different events in the different history, and I'm treating it in the same way, the reader is ready to experience that and understand how I'm, how I'm doing that. But from her own point of view, she is one person. She just has different things happen to her and, and different lives. And that's why I can bring it back together when she has the dementia and she is in the home, because she is that, is that one person. And that, that, that's what was, what was hard, but also fun. Well, another, th- another thing that was interesting for me is even before you, you brought up Middlemarch explicitly in the book, I had George Eliot on my mind with this book. And, and I'm, I'm curious ab- about her influence, if there is an influence on my real children. Because when I was reading The Alternate Lives, I sort of viewed them as res- one resonating with Dorothea from Middlemarch and the other resonating with George Eliot's actual life. When you have Dorothea, uh, a pious um, but intellectually uh, astute and ambitious woman thwarted by the the absence of, or the presence of sexism, and you have George Eliot going and living an unconventional life following love yes. and desire regardless of society's judgments upon her. And I felt like Trish really felt like Dorothea, even before there was this mm-hmm. explicit mention, and then Pat felt actually to me in some ways like George, the way I imagined George Eliot. That's a really interesting comparison, and I had not thought of that before, but I'm not sure you're wrong. It was not consciously in my mind, but now that you say it, certainly, yes, I can see that. Certainly, I was thinking, uh, I mean, I, I actually mention it explicitly, but I was thinking about Dorothea with Trish, with her typing her husband's book and then she reads Middlemarch when she's she's doing it and she's an English major you know she would think about that so I was I was thinking about that but I wasn't really thinking about that explicit uh thing but yes George Eliot got away but she didn't let her characters get away exactly yeah Uh, and and you, you you get the same thing with Trollope where Trollope Trollope's female characters are all trapped, but yet his mother, and he knew this, supported herself as a writer, supported the whole family as a writer, but he never allows his female characters to have economic independence ever. And it's, it's the economic independence thing that is, is significant and, and different there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have this great essay that you wrote about Middlemarch and about George Eliot, and in it you say... What I want is stories as well-written and as well-characterized as Middlemarch, but with more options for what can happen. More options meaning uh, more options than realist fiction provides. Yes. Uh, and, so, and, and then you also talk about George Eliot having what you call a science fictional mind and lament that she didn't actually overtly write science fiction. Well, she couldn't really because science fiction didn't exist at the time when she was writing. Yeah, that, that essay is called What a Pity She Didn't Single-Handedly Invent Science Fiction. But no, nobody could have done that. But, 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 but it was a joke, really. But yes, yeah. But could you speak to her, what you mean by a science fictional mind in relationship to George Eliot and in okay. general? She understood that it was changing technology that changes society, which is a thing that very, very few people in the 19th century understood. And even coming into the 20th century, and even now, I think now people would say, well, yes, look at computers, they've changed the way we do things. Look at the internet, it's changed the way we do things. But I think, I think even as recently as the middle of the 20th century, people didn't really see that in the same kind of way. And there's a sort of science fictional mindset that looks at 
you know, the invention of faster-than-light travel and then talks about that. And George Eliot was looking at the invention of railroads and how railroads allowed a woman to go from Manchester to London on her own, which would have been a three-day journey that you couldn't have done without protection because you genuinely couldn't do it. It's not just that it wasn't done, oh, shocking. You'd have got killed, yeah. Um, And... Then there were trains and they were safe and a woman could do that alone and it was a complete game changer. And she saw how that changed that and she also saw how that worked economically and how that changed the world economically. And I think that that kind of attitude, it's not only science fiction writers that have that, but it is a science fictional way of viewing the present and the way of viewing history that George Eliot very much did have. And you get passages where she's explicitly talking about this and about changes. Um, and that's just great. Yeah, and it's so unusual. I mean, you'd never get that in Trollope or Dickens. Or, or even Mrs. Gaskell, who, who writes about the changes but isn't seeing them in the same kind of way. And Trollope laments the coming of the railroads because it's ruining coaching inns, whereas George Eliot can see the social changes. And mm. um, science fiction is very much... It's not about rocket ships whiz-bang. It's about rocket ships allow us to go fast and get to places in a different time and change things. And, and you can put in steam trains there and jet planes and all of that kind of kind of thing. But the the difference is what it does to us. The us who are taking the trains, the us who are taking the rocket ships. That's what it's really about. And that, well, that's what it's interestingly about. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers and we're talking today to Joe Walton about her latest book, My Real Children. So you mentioned that really you're foregrounding the alternate history of a person with the alternate his- the actual larger alternate history happening in the background. And we do see changes from the actual history of our lives that happen differently in these two different lives. In one, we see a limited nuclear exchange, for instance, between the United States and Russia over the Bay of Pigs. And, mm-hmm. and there are other, other events that happen in the background, but that end up intersecting with um, imp- have implications for, for the protagonist. Were there particular changes that you made in the history that um, were particularly fun fun to make for you? Or not fun to make, but in- fascinating and interesting to make what? might be a better word. All, 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 of them were, all of them were fascinating. And one thing I did for this book, I've written alternate history before where I had one change point and then everything flowed from that. And with this, because it is small changes coming from her behavior and then mushrooming in, in a butterfly effect kind of chaos kind of way. I wanted to have lots of little things that went differently. And I, I asked on my live journal, uh, I asked my, my readers on my live journal if they could think of small changes for the second half of the 20th century that would produce different histories. And some people came up with some really, really fascinating ones that I would never have thought of, like the, the independence movement in Goa, which is... Portugal-owned Goa, which is a part of India. And Goa started an independence movement, and Portugal basically said, oh, all right, then, be independent uh, in the 70s. And it could have gone the other way and become a giant civil war with massive insurrection being put down and fighting. And somebody suggested that, and I would never have thought of that on my own. But I thought, yes, that in that world, in one of those worlds, the Goa civil war could go like that, and it could end up a lot of different things would happen. And so, yes, I've got a lot of things like that. And I was particularly 
I was particularly looking at non-American changes, world changes. So the other thing is, because I had two worlds to play with, I diverged them both in different directions from our world, which is the control world, as it were. So we know our history, and if we don't, Google knows our history. We can go look it up. So, for instance, the Suez Crisis in 1956, uh, I'm sure everybody knows what happened in reality, and as I say, if you don't, Google does. But in one world there is mini-Suez, and in the other world there is hyper-Suez. And one of the results of Suez in reality was that Britain and France ceased to trust the US. Um, because the US didn't allow Britain and France to colonially walk all over Egypt. That's essentially what happened in the Suez Crisis. And in this world where it goes worse, Britain joins the European Union right away at the Treaty of Rome, whereas in reality Britain didn't join until 1973, from 1956 to 1973, Britain was outside of it and closer to America. But in this world, Britain goes into Europe right away, and the whole European Union development is very different. Uh, and Europe becomes a third power block. So the Cold War carries on. And there are three nuclear-armed, suspicious-of-each-other power blocks in that world. And in the other world where Suez fizzles and the US doesn't, isn't seen as betraying Britain and France, Britain stays much closer to the US. And also in that world then, with the Cold War, we get mini, uh, or, or actually the other way around, hyper-1989, where the Soviet stuff all just sort of continues to call itself Soviet, but just gets calmer. The tanks don't go into Hungary. They don't kill the Czechs, okay? The Prague Spring works. The, everything is calmer and more relaxed, and the whole world becomes much more peaceful than us. Uh, and then in the other world, then the opposite, where they have the, the limited nuclear exchange, as you said, over the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so the more time goes on, the further they diverge from each other, so that by the end they are really completely different worlds. But it's crept up on both the reader and the character that she hasn't realised what all these little changes mean, which is the way that it happens in real life. You know, you, you don't... I'm 50 this year, and I've seen enough little changes like that uh, as history happens. So it used to be that you could walk into an airport with your friend and go right up to the gate with them. At Easter 2001, you could do that. Now that is unthinkable. So those kinds of changes in the way we live and the way that we think about the normal things that we do just happen. And... With this book, I got to do those kinds of changes happening twice in two different ways to the same character. And, and you mentioned earlier about second wave feminism, and, mm -hmm. and you, you do that also with these two divergent exactly. trends in terms of looking at Trish and looking at Pat and when their lives intersect with feminism. That's when, right. And how a late, like with Trish, we, we, we don't see that intersection happen until her kids have grown up. Mm -hmm. And um, she is really... Uh, under the thumb of the most brutal form of sexism mm -hmm. or a very brutal form of yeah. sexism. Whereas Pat living um, a much more um, unconventional life uh, is really pushing up against boundaries of uh, gay and lesbian rights. That's right. And it's very fascinating to see how those, um, just the timeliness of when that happens in a person's life can change a trajectory. 
Yeah, and also Pat, uh, Pat and B, as a couple, have a very easy time of it in many ways for a lesbian couple because they, they're financially safe, they're career safe, and everything is pretty good until B has her accident and suddenly they've got social workers involved and they've got people looking at them in a, in a dangerous way and they are afraid because in their world things are worse on that front as well. Or actually, they're not any worse at that moment than they were in Britain in reality at that moment, but later they are worse. And so, yes, they're on different frontiers of the same war there with, with that, whereas Trish has a much more conventional experience that many, many people did in the 70s of reading The Feminine Mystique and suddenly realising what she's been putting up with and coming to sort of consciousness raising and all of this kind of thing from that that direction and then getting into local politics and grassroots level politics locally uh, from from over there. But in her world, as in our world, homosexuality is legalised in 1969 in the UK and she could perfectly well have been a lesbian in that world, but in that world she wasn't. She never met her female partner that she met in the other world and that, that, that didn't happen. Uh, and that, that was something else that I wanted to do. It's very much, this is very much an anti-providence book. You know, the idea that God has a plan for your life. Well, no, God doesn't have a plan for your life. You, you, you make your own life, you make your own decisions. And that's, that's very much what I was doing. She, she makes her own life and finds her own different way. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Joe Walton about her latest novel, My Real Children. So, Joe, do you have a, a piece that you could read uh, from sure. the book? Yeah. I'm going to read a part of the first chapter. It's very difficult to read anything from this book that's not the first chapter because it's in two, two split halves of her two lives. And anything else that I read, apart from the first and the last chapter, it's from one life or the other. And then that prejudices one life or the other when you, when you read it. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs from the first chapter here. Where she is 88 or 89, she doesn't know. It's 2014 or 2015. She's in a nursing home. The indisputable fact was she was confused. She lost track of her thoughts. She had difficulty remembering things. People told her things and she heard them and reacted and then forgot all about them. She had forgotten that Bethany had been signed by a record label. She was just as delighted the second time Bethany told her didn't matter. Bethany had been crushed that she had forgotten. Worse, she'd forgotten, unforgivably, that Jamie had been killed. She knew that Kathy was wounded that she could have forgotten, even though she'd said that she wished she could forget herself. Kathy was so easily hurt, and she wouldn't have hurt her for anything, especially after such a loss. But she had, unthinkingly, because her brain wouldn't hold the memory. How much else had she forgotten? and then not even remembered that she had forgotten. Her brain couldn't be trusted. Now she imagined that she was living in two different realities, drifting between them. But it must be her brain that was at fault, like a computer with a virus that made some sectors inaccessible and others impossible to write to. That had been Rodri's metaphor. Rodri was one of the few people who would talk to her about her dementia as a problem, a problem with potential fixes and workarounds. She hadn't seen him for too long. Perhaps he was busy, or... Perhaps she'd been in the other world, the world where he didn't exist, if there were two worlds. If there were two worlds, then what caused her to slide between them? There weren't two times. It was the same year, whichever year it was, 
It was just that things were different, things that shouldn't have been different. She had four children, or three. There was a lift in the nursing home, or there was only a stair lift. She could remember things that couldn't simultaneously be true. She remembered Kennedy being assassinated, and she remembered him declining to run again after the Cuban Missile Exchange. They couldn't both have happened, yet she remembered them both happening. Had she made a choice that could have gone two ways and thereafter had two lives? Two lives that both began in Twickenham in 1926 and both ended here in this nursing home in 2014 or 2015, whichever it was. Well, that's great. Thank uh, you. <laughs> so you're, you're a big rereader and your, your book of essays, uh, What Makes This Book So Great, is a, a lot, largely books that you've reread. Yes, it's all, it's all about rereading. And, yes. and in a way, the way you've written this book, you, you um, provide a way for us to reread Patricia's life. So we, we read it and reread it. And uh, I was curious, what, what are the pleasures for you around rereading? Well, I like reading new books too, but I like rereading because I know what I'm going to get. It's not going to disappoint me. It's not going to be new, but I know that it will be like visiting an old friend can be better than making a new friend exactly the same way. Uh, reading a, reading an old book can be better than reading a new book because I'm not I'm not going to be surprised, but that's also good. I'm not going to be let down. I'm not going to be surprised. I can enjoy it at a slower pace. I can follow it along because I'm, I'm not worried about what's going to happen to the characters I know. I'm not going to uh, race through it to find out in, in worry about them. I'm going to read it slowly and savour the prose and, and enjoy what's going on. I often say that if I read something only once, that means I didn't like it. My, my real reading of a book happens when I read it for the first time again. My, my second read of a book is the real read of the book when I already know the plot and I know where it's going. And then I can really enjoy it and I can, I can relax into it and, and enjoy reading it. And there are books that I have read many, many, many times, but the vast majority of books I will read twice. Um, something I've only read once, I, I might as well not have read. Well, reading My Real Children um, made me think of something that you wrote about Samuel Delaney, because I was curious uh, when I was reading My Real Children, what your take was on, on women in, in science fiction and fantasy today and, 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 and the sexism or, or lack thereof they experience as writers in, in that community. And, and you'd written something about Samuel Delaney. You talk about how he, he's still very cutting edge today, even though his books that were written 40 years mm -hmm. ago, that the, that the science fiction fantasy community hasn't caught up to some of the things that mm -hmm. he's doing in terms of gender and, and race and sexual yes. orientation. So I, I, I would I be interested to hear about what sort of barriers you feel uh, women face today and in, in the science fiction and fantasy world as a writer? I think that they're the same barriers that women face in the rest of the world. I think that there's sexism within genre because there's sexism in the world. Uh, and I think actually it's slightly better within genre than it is elsewhere. Uh, and I, I think that's that's always been the case. And it's improved no end just in the time that I've been around. Uh, people today, women today, are not prepared to put up with the kind of crap that we were prepared to put up with. Uh, it's no longer acceptable. And people get called on 
casual sexism that would have just been normal. That, that when I was when I was coming into fandom, the kind of thing that you would just roll your eyes and laugh and pretend to laugh because what could you do about it? Young women today just will not put up with that. And that's great. I think this is just wonderful. I have not personally, I don't think, experienced a whole lot of either sexism or barriers in my career as a writer. I've been very, very fortunate. I've got a terrific editor. My publishers have been completely behind me. Whatever I write, whether it's commercial or not, all the way along, they've just been absolutely terrific. I really, really like Tor Books, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, everybody at Tor. They've all been great. Now, I, I've never experienced any of this thing, but John Scalzi has a piece on his blog about how if he'd been Joan Scalzi or Jane Scalzi, I think it is, uh, how would his career have been different? And you cannot tell if I'd been Joe with an E, Walton, would my, and I'd written exactly the same books, would my career have been different? Well, who can tell? I wouldn't have written exactly the same books because you write out of your experience and out of who you are and your life. And who I am and my life and my experience is, is having that life as a woman. And it would have been different if I'd been a guy. And you, you cannot know what, what that would be. The one thing that Strange Horizons, the uh, excellent online magazine Strange Horizons, have been doing a thing for several years now where they look at how many science fiction and fantasy books are published by men and by women in the US and in the UK. And how many are reviewed. Uh, and consistently, far more books by men are reviewed than books by women. And this is partly because women write more paranormal romance and urban fantasy, which just gets less reviewed. It just gets less respect. But why? Why does it... I mean, I hate it, actually, but why does it get less respect? It gets less respect because it's got girl cooties. It's not that I personally don't like it. I, I also don't like zombie books, but World War Z was reviewed to hell and back, okay? Right. I hate pirates, but pirate books get reviewed. But those stereotypically female bits of genre don't get reviewed. And books by women get fewer reviews. And we, we have stats on this that Strange Horizons have pulled up. But this year's one that really kind of shook me was that number, just straight up number published in the US, 47% female. Isn't that great? Okay, almost almost equity. That's, that's just noise. That is equity. Okay, perfect. In the UK, 25%. Wow. It's 28 or something like that, less than 30% female. And you, you can just look at this on a pie chart that is screamingly obvious. Now, I am from Britain, though I live in Canada. I am a Canadian now. I've lived in Canada since 2002. I emigrated personally. I chose to be Canadian. But I'm from the UK. I've never been published in the UK until last year. Uh, among others was my first book to be published in the UK. And it was published by Corsair, which is a new publishing line that was part of then Constable and Robinson, now Little Brown. And they've been great to me. And they've, they've now bought a whole pile of my books. They've, they've, they're doing this, My Real Children, the new one. They've done the collection. They've done the three small change books, my other alternate history books, as paperbacks. They've done pretty much everything as e-books. They've, they've been terrific this last two years, since 2012. I really like them. They're excellent. They're new. Established British science fiction publishing has been very, very, very unwelcome to women. 
uh, over the last 15 years of my career. I tried very hard to get Farthing published in Britain because I thought that was a book that people over there would like. And also, no, it's out there. It's selling really well. I got reviewed in The Guardian. Yay. But uh, I thought that this would be the case. But I got 11, and an agent as well, 11 rejections for a book that was nominated for a Nebula and was an indie bestseller in the US. Um, and there's something going on there, and it's not that I'm not good enough. I mean, maybe it is that I'm not good enough, me. But when you when you look at the fact that it's half in the US and less than 30% in the UK, there's something going on sure. in Britain there. That is sexism. And I, I don't think you can kind of deny that that is actually a problem. Uh, but but in, in any individual case for any individual person, it's very, very difficult to put your finger on whether it is sexism or whether it's just that you're personally not quite there or or whatever it is market tastes are different and that, that's what they say but when you look at it overall with stats like that i don't think there's all that much sort of argument left to be had that there's actually something going on and, and again with the reviewing as well. well well let me ask you an easier question uh what what authors come to mind that you feel like aren't um should be considered in the sci-fi fantasy canon but perhaps because they're women, aren't considered the Samuel Delaney or William Gibson or Chana Miedel and, right. and should be? Yeah, that, uh, that's a really good question. The only women who are considered really to be that canonical are Ursula Le Guin, Joanna Russ, uh, less so these days, uh, and James Tipperee Jr. Maybe uh, Margaret um, Atwood. Well, Atwood from outside of the genre, yeah. Mm. But within genre, the, so William Gibson was your, your example there, okay. The year before Gibson won everything in sight with Neuromancer, C.J. Cherry uh, won everything with Down Below Station, won the Hugo. And C.J. Cherry has continued to have a very, very successful career publishing loads of books. She won another Hugo in 1988, but she hasn't won anything since 1988. And she's... she's got a great career. She's a wonderful writer. She's one of my favourite, favourite writers. But she's not somebody that most people would mention in their top ten. She's not got the kind of recognition, neither the kind of mainstream broad recognition that William Gibson has, nor the within genre one of the people who comes to the tip of your tongue recognition that you would expect for somebody who is just that great. And she's a wonderful, wonderful, core, hard science fiction space opera terrific aliens and spaceships genre science fiction writer. Um, but she she doesn't get that kind of level of recognition that you would sort of expect to see. And another, I mean, again, top of the trees writer, she's won a whole bunch of Hugos, Lois McMaster Bujold. But she's not a household name. And again, I think she's an absolutely terrific writer. And I could keep going for hours here with really, really good women writers who have not had quite the recognition they ought to have. But if you if you just look at those two, I think that they ought to be in everybody's top 10 of writers of the last 30 years. But they almost certainly wouldn't be. Even though they've got the sales and they've got the recognition, or at least some recognition, but they're not spilling over, they're not really, they're not coming to people's minds when they talk about it. That's where sexism is. Nobody, very few people want to be sexist. But you've got your canonical examples, you've got your formed canon, you've got the people who are part of canon, and then you've got people who fall out. 
even when at the time they got a lot of recognition, they fall out of the story when the story's being told later. You forget they exist. So Marion Zimmer Bradley, she was huge in the 70s. Her Dark Over series was one of Dawes' giant sellers in the 70s and 80s. And Mrs. of Avalon was, I think it sold the maximum number of copies any book has ever sold in trade paperback or something like that. And yet, nobody would really be thinking of her as one of these people who was forming the genre then, even though she absolutely was. Mm. And there's there's a whole pile of of people uh, exactly like this. But I think now... People are more receptive to not just women, but writers of colour as well. I think that people are more more wanting more diverse voices. And that's, that's terrific. But I, I think there actually is a movement towards that. And it's great. So let's talk a little bit about your process. While you're a big rereader, you're not a rewriter. No. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what seems like an unusual uh, okay. approach in the sense that you don't do drafts? Sometimes I do drafts. Um, oh, you do? Every book is different from every other book. And I do rolling rewrites when I am writing. I will go back and change things. I don't usually do drafts, but I have done drafts. The book, Not this book. I've got two books coming out next year which have had drafts. I always say you do not learn how to write. You learn how to write the book that you're writing, and the next book will surprise you, and you'll have to write it in a different way. And that's certainly been the case for me. Yeah. But while I like to reread, I like to read the same book again. I don't like to read a book that is a faint variation on a theme of a book that I've read before. So I also don't like to write a book that is a variation on a book that I've written before. So all of my books are different. All of my books are in different subgenres because I get tired of doing the same thing. I feel, okay, done that now. Right, let's do something else. Bored now. Uh, So all of my books are different from each other. And that's both a strength and a weakness because sometimes people will really like one of my books and they would wish I would write more like that, but I don't. Um, I write something else. Well, one of the things I really love that you you touched on earlier is that you have this symbiotic relationship with your fan base in terms of research. Mm-hmm. So you you um, you use your your live journal f- followers. Yep. Um, and ask them questions as you're writing um, to help you f- make a world uh, and, and do world building mm-hmm. in terms of getting the, some yeah. of the maybe smaller facts correct. Yeah. Uh, could you talk us a little bit more about that? I call them correspondents rather than followers because I feel it's more equal that yeah. way. That's, that's what, I, what I think about them. They're great. Um, yeah, I will, I will write something and I will have things that I need to look up and I will go back to my internet computer. I have a writing computer and an internet computer. And I will go back to my internet computer and I will Google the things that I can Google and the things that are hard to Google I will post on my live journal and ask people. And I will get an interesting cross-section of answers always. And often there are people who know the most obscure things. It's terrific. It's a really, really great resource for me. But the other thing that I will do with them is sometimes I will know something perfectly well, but I want to know whether other people know it or whether I need to explain it. So I will say, what do you know about habeas corpus? And 15 people will explain it to me wrong. And I'll realize that I've got to explain in the book how it works and what it means. And um, I will say, without Googling, do you know who Marzias was? 
and then I will see that I get 75 no and 12 yes, and that means that I've got to write what I'm going to write in a slightly different way because I can't assume background knowledge and that kind of thing. So it's it's an absolutely invaluable resource for that. Also, it's fun, and I get to hang out with with fun people who, who like doing this kind of stuff. But if you want to know what a wheelchair weighed in 1970, good luck Googling. Um, nobody wants to tell you that, but, but there'll be people out there who, who were in a wheelchair in 1970 and know what it weighed, or whose dad was in a wheelchair and they lifted it into the car, and they know what it weighed. Mm-hmm. And you can get those kinds of things. And when I was writing Among Others, Among Others is set in 1979 and 1980 in Britain. And it's about a girl who reads science fiction. And you can very, very easily find out when something was published for the first time. That's trivial, that's everywhere. But when the first British paperback came out, is impossible information to get. Or at least it was then. Actually, there's now a really good site that, that tells you this. But right then, it was really hard to get. So unless I personally owned the British paperback, which I often did, but if I didn't, if I'd got rid of it, then it was very hard to get. So I would, I would ask this on LiveJournal, and there, people would tell me, because they'd have it. You know, they, they would open up the book and they'd say, Fontana did it in 1978, or, or whatever. And that was, that was wonderful. And there's no way I could have researched that without massive investment of time. And there were people who were just doing that. And people enjoy doing this. It's fun for them to have my trivia. And it's fun for them to be asked. And if it's not fun, they don't do it. Uh, and it's fun for me, and it, it works really well. And it's a, it's a great community. It's, it's Paper Sky at Live Journal, um, and uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds fantastic to me. And you you also have incorporated a couple real historical personages into the book briefly as cameos. So we have Tolkien and we have Wittgenstein yes. make appearances. What what sort of considerations did you did you have in in having these these figures enter into the story of Patricia? very peripherally there but uh, what I wanted to do is say that people know people who are famous everybody interacts with somebody everybody's mother's got somebody they were in college with who was a famous person and she was at Oxford and Tolkien was teaching at Oxford and she was reading English and she would and in fact my my friend Jill that this book is dedicated to uh was taught by Tolkien in Oxford, and she told me the story which is in the book of Tolkien walking into the classroom at nine o'clock on a Monday morning and starting off, what? Which is the first word of Beowulf. Ah. And I put that in the book, but that, that's absolutely real, and, and that, she, that she had told me. And when she told me that, I was just thrilled to bits, because, whoa, Tolkien, you know, she met Tolkien, he taught her, that's so amazing. But to her... It was just like, you know, any prof that you had. He was just like her prof. He was just nobody. He wasn't famous. And getting that understanding in is something that I wanted to do. So I don't use very many real people, but I do have some real people peripherally wandering through in this book. And in my new book that is coming out in January, uh, The Just City, I have more real people. That's the first book where I've ever really had a significant use of real historical figures. And it's difficult and strange, and I feel odd about using them. I feel weird about it. Could you talk a little bit about some of the writing terms that you've invented? And a couple that come to mind are including and protagonismos. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about about those. Uh, they're obviously filling gaps for you in, in, yeah. 
in what you're not seeing in, okay. in the standard terminology. Yes. I have an allergy to how to write books. I've never actually read a book of how to write, and I've never actually taken a writing class. And whenever people talk about writing, the terms that they use, the lexicon of words that are generally used for talking about writing, come from lit crit. And they are words that are very useful for lit crit, but not really very useful for the organic process of what I do when I'm writing, and particularly for science fiction and fantasy, science fiction and fantasy, genre writing that uses uh, different techniques. And so when I was teaching myself to write without the benefit of reading things about how to write, because I would just read a little bit of them and kind of curl up in a ball, uh, I made up a whole pile of terms. And most of the terms I made up actually have, there are real terms for that, that I didn't know. Yeah. Um, But some of them there aren't real terms for, because I identified something that nobody else was looking at. But I didn't know that. I I always thought until... I got online and started randomly having conversations about this. I always thought I was just using my own shorthand words and that there were proper words. And then I found out that there weren't. Incluing, which is the most useful to people, is the process of scattering little pieces of information into a text that people can put together themselves to, to assemble a world or what's going on or whatever. It's so you do not stop the story for exposition. You just put in little pieces of stuff. So if you say, I was walking along and my red shadow was falling on my blue shadow, giving a purple stripe, then the character is just talking about looking at their shadow, but the reader knows there are two suns or that there's something odd going on with with shadows. And the reader puts that together, and then later on when you say the blue sun was rising, the reader thinks, ha, there are two suns. And the reader stores up these pieces of information and puts them together. The reader is joining with you in building the world and the story and the background. And, And genre readers like doing this. It is how you can distinguish a genre reader from a non-genre reader. A non-genre reader will think that this is boring and stupid and they have to remember everything and they don't like it. And a genre reader will think, yay, this is fun. Um, and that is, that is including protagonismos is, is the quality that a, that a protagonist has that makes them the kind of person that a story is about. You can't tell stories about boring people. You can't tell stories about people who don't have this quality of, of having stories happen to them. Many of my characters would like not to have it. My characters would like to run off and live in Constantinople <laughs> and get away from me. Um, but uh, <laughs> to, to write a story, I have to have a character who, who has that, uh, for, for that to work. And my, my one that I can never explain properly is mode. And mode is a word that musically means something, okay? And I took it from music, uh, but what I mean by mode is the position that you, the writer, take with regard to the text. So it's, it's, it covers things that are like style and like what point of view you use and what tense you use and things like that, perfectly straightforward things. But it also covers things like how funny you can be and how seriously you are taking things. And it's where you're standing with regard to the text. And mode is something that I really... It's what I need first. I can't do anything if I don't have mode. And it's something I find very, very difficult to get across to people what it actually is in my mind. That's, that's the one that's always difficult to uh, to explain and for people to get. Hmm. Yeah. 
So, so on your website, you say that you'd like to live to be 99 and, and write a book every year. Yeah, that's my plum. Can, can no, you, that's my new plum. That sounds like a great plan. Yeah, yeah, I like this plum. So t- tell us what we can look forward to. You, you, you just tipped your hand a little bit about an upcoming book. Maybe yeah. you could talk, if you're willing to talk a little oh, bit yeah. about it and also what you're working on now, too. Okay, well, I have two books coming out next year in January and June, which are related. They are part of the same thing. And the the overall name for this thing is Thessaly, but the books are called The Just City and The Philosopher Kings. And they are about some the fantasy, and they are about some Greek gods and 300 philosophers and classic ma- majors from across all of time setting up Plato's Republic on Atlantis, Thera before it erupted, with giant robots... and 10,000 slave children that they have purchased. And they are doing Plato's Republic as Plato once uh, sets out to do, and they they start to do it. So with the help of Athene and an incarnate Apollo, um, they they set out to do this. And it goes just exactly as well as you might expect in these circumstances. (laughs) Um, And I had a great deal of fun with the the first book. Um, It has Socrates in it, and it has has snarky Socrates in it. It has Apollo's point of view. And uh, I just had a terrific time writing that book, and I kind of raced through it. And then then I wrote the second one, and that was harder. It's always harder. Uh, and most of this year, year, I have been revising these two books and making them better. I have done drafts, and I, I am still in final revisions on the Philosopher Kings. Uh, and I may write a third volume, which would be called Necessity. And that's what I'm sort of thinking about writing. I also have a couple of other projects on the go, but my problem as a writer is that I can write 10,000 words of anything and it doesn't necessarily mean I can write a whole book. So I wrote a lot of false starts. If I was a really famous person like George R. R. Martin, I could publish an entire book of failed novels um, that, that would be all my false starts. And so I do that a lot. And I can never really tell until I get to a certain point whether it's really going to be a book or not. And even with Necessity, which would be the third book of Thessaly, if I can write it, I don't know yet whether I can write it because I've not written it. So I I get a certain way into a book and I think, yeah, okay, I'm not going to stall out now. But often I do stall out, so I I have to be, be careful with that. So... So I could tell you lots of things that I'm sort of writing and sort of thinking about, but it wouldn't really be very profitable for anybody because some of you would want them and then maybe they would never happen and then you'd be sad. But if you read my life journal, you will get to hear about all kinds of stupid things that I work on from time to time uh, and and will probably never finish. They're, but, they're all your alternate histories. Yeah, my, my, my alternate novels. Yeah, yeah. My, my son was joking about this book, about my real children. He said, last time you went on tour, you took me, but this time you're taking your real children. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great having you on Between the Covers today, Joe. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. We're talking today with Joe Walton about her most recent book, My Real Children. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> <laughs>